Hey everybody, Ron here. So Buckley and I took the week off, but I do have a little something for you. I'm going to be giving you a couple of episodes, actually. The one you're going to be listening to right now is part three of the Idaho 4 murder series that I've been collaborating with the New York Patriot and J.J. Vance from the GCD podcast. Hopefully you've listened to part one and part two have some more information to give you on that and we're going to be uh, doing a part four real soon let us know what you think hold on a second yeah yeah, yeah i'm coming hold on ron what are you doing here there's something i need to tell you are we alone quick Grab anything you can. We gotta go. Is there a back door? They're coming. They're coming. Oh god, they're here. Go. Damn this wicked planet. Welcome to the NY Patriot Show. Uh, this week, I'm coming back at you with uh, JJ Vance and Ron from New England to talk more about the Brian Koberger case in the Idaho 4. Uh, there has been a couple of new developments uh, since the last time we spoke, and uh, probably a few other things that are you know questionable and stuff that I've seen and has made me think about the case that might be worth talking about again. Um, to get into it just real quick, in case people don't know who Ron and JJ are, if this is their first time seeing these two gentlemen, uh, Ron, would you like to introduce yourself and let everybody know where they can find you and what your deal is? Yeah, sure thing. Ron from New England, host of the Wicked Planet podcast. You can find me, uh, find me anywhere. Wherever you listen to podcasts, come and find me. And I'm on Instagram at Ron from New England. Come and check it out. And you cover a lot of, you cover kind of like an array of topics too, don't you? Yeah, I'd like to get, because anything and everything I can talk about, and uh, and a lot of things interest me, mostly conspiracies and the bullshit and politics, right? So yeah. so I go pretty good on that, but uh, but I like the true crime stuff. The, we've got a bunch of cold case stuff we're working on, me and Buckley. And uh, yeah, so we got some interesting stuff in the works. I'm trying to branch out a little bit away from the what I call the uh, mainstream conspiracies. Yes, sure. Get, getting a lot, getting like severely bored with that stuff. But uh, <laughs> I, I will talk about current events and kind of give my two cents on it. You know, uh, from a non BS point of view. Yeah, that's kind of why I wanted to just let you put that out there too, is because like you kind of like do you're not like if, if people are into conspiracies, a true crime, or you know, kind of like daily news. I think that, you know they could listen to your show. You you kind of wide topics and i think that's uh, that's awesome that's well, great well that's what we do in the beginning we do like the first half 
We'll talk a little bit about what we got going on, local things, and then things that are happening out in the world. Like, you know, I had a whole list of things in the recent show. And then when we get towards the second half of the show, if we have a deep subject we're going to get into, then we get into that subject for the, for the second part of the show. So we, we're, not, we're unscripted. I don't have a lot of guests on. Very seldom do I have guests on. We just, uh, we just go for it. We just hit play and go for it. So I, I think it makes it kind of entertaining. Oh, yeah, no, it's for sure. And JJ, oh, and by the way, the links for all of them are in the bottom, so you can go check out that stuff now if you want. And JJ, let everybody know what's up, man. And thank Howdy. you back. Thank you. No, thank you for the invite, Nick. JJ Vance, I'm the host of the Operation GCD podcast. That's Garbage Can Dude. It's where I uh, like to mash together comedy and conspiracy theory, and I build the... Uh, the podcast is a uh, shenanigan-infused journey into the mind of this particular garbage can dude. And I cover, you know, topics of parapolitical nature, occult nature. Uh, I don't get too much into the true crime stuff. However, occasionally I do. Um, I, I have a history, professional history of a career in uh, the Air Force Military Police. I have an education in criminal justice, grad, post-grad. So I do like to, I do like to delve into these topics, this case in particular with the Idaho Four. And Brian Koberger has been of unique interest to me since essentially it, it, it occurred. Uh, it's kind of grown into a greater interest of mine because I, I have a deep uh, dislike for uh, miscarriages of justice and uh, the homicide of bright young adults. And uh, that is the case we have here. And another incidence where I uh, take unique umbrage with the homicide of bright young adults is the smiley face killers. I do a lot of coverage on that as well on the Operation GCD podcast. And Nick, thanks for the invite. And Ron, great great to see you again. Looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, awesome. you too, JJ, yeah. Yeah, and just real quick to let the uh, people listening uh, on the live right now, if there's any, any questions you got that, you know, uh, goes along with all this, I guess, you know, just ask. And if you have anything to add, uh, you know, toss that into the chat as well, because I do check. Um, like when I did that premiere last week on uh, Rex Human in the Gilgo Beach, you know, there was amazing stuff being added in the chat. So if any of you people out there now listening, please add. It definitely helps, I think, with the show. And real quick, just to make a, uh, a quick uh announcement i was supposed to drop uh something this week on the go-go beach um that's going to end up being next week i was originally looking to show connections to the book of the law but now i've probably found about 15 or 20 connections to alistair crowley poems also to the gilgo beach murders so i'm going to be doing part two on a whole bunch of other stuff and poems that crowley wrote showing the numerical value matching streets places and peoples and dates and then the third part we'll get into the, uh, the book of lies book of lies that he wrote um it sounds like some good research nick i look forward to checking but i see a couple of people in the chat that i think we're checking that out last time so just to let you all know i do have some crazy shit coming with the numbers uh, poems of crowley and book of lies all tying into the gilgo beach murders it's actually bizarre at this point where it's like you know, it's just like the code to the matrix because I can't even see how somebody could even purposely match all this shit 
uh, it's just insane, you know? Sure. Yeah. So that's enough about out of me and the, uh, I guess, the public service announcement there. <laughs> um, back to uh, the Idaho 4 and Koberger. Um, I guess, you know, one thing that I would like to, I guess, maybe start off with, even though, you know, it's kind of something that's fairly new, but I thought about asking uh, you, JJ, um, I guess maybe because you have a little bit more, uh, you know, background with actually going to school with law and all that stuff. But to me, I, I thought that whole thing with um, them with the alibi, I thought that was really weird, actually. Oh, like, it's, it's I didn't super know what weird. To get out of that. It's almost like, well, I don't know. I, so what's up? What do you think is up with that? And Ron, of course, like your opinion, but you know, whatever you think too. But. No, that's a that's a good good way to start this off because that is one of the most unique aspects I've I found in recent developments in the case. I was kind of unfamiliar with the Idaho law in that regard because really the way I look at it, what they're trying to do is violate Brian Coburn's Fifth Amendment right to remain silent. He has the right to not make incriminating statements at any point in time in this trial, and if he chooses to invoke that right. He's welcome to do that at any point in time. And he kind of already danced on the kind of the, or at least is on the fence of, of doing that already by not pleading at his initial hearing. He stood quietly when the judge asked him to submit, submit a plea and the judge submitted the non guilty plea form, which was the law in, in Idaho. If you don't make it, make a plea. So he's already kind of started down that path. And I, I just think, as you pointed out, this whole, this whole, uh, all these back and forth motions, for to try to compel or force Brian Koberger to produce his alibi now is simply lawfare. And it's sim- and lawfare, if you're not familiar with it or Ron or any of the folks of the interwebs, it's kind of a term that's it's grown in uh, recent popularity in recent years, at least, as far as uh, applying the, the uh, principles of combat to law. And uh, it's not necessarily following the law or, or trying to adjudicate things in a lawful or uh, organized manner, but you know, using any any measure under the law to combat the opposing side. And that seems like what the state of Idaho has done here with trying to force Koberger to produce his alibi. Now, I think as a defense attorney has done great work by not, you know, uh, kowtowing to, to the state's demands of producing this alibi at this point in time because they know what they're up against. They realize what, what, what the details are that the public doesn't realize. And I think that site picture that his counsel has is a far more cogent site picture and understanding that it is best for Cobra to remain silent until the state makes the first move and produces their case. Yeah, 100%, JJ. What the, apparently, there's an there's a Idaho statute uh, that pertains to this whole deal where the prosecution is demanding that Brian Koberger's mm-hmm. defense hands over his alibi. Uh, yep. and, and his defense, which is a public, uh, public defender, uh, she is saying that, Ann Taylor is her name, she's saying that, look, you, if you're going to get it, you'll get it during you know, further discovery. <laughs> Right, when I damn well feel like providing it. Yeah, because what's <laughs> happening is we know that the state, the prosecution, has been holding back the exculpatory evidence that we talked about in the Big last time. episode, right? So now, now, so like, like you say, using a little, uh, little uh, 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 lawfare, right? Yep. Which is a perfect mm-hmm. term for what's going on. This is oh, a absolutely. this is a tit for tat freaking battle 
over how this case is going to proceed forward. Because if the prosecution is holding back evidence, but they're demanding that the defense give them evidence, well, they're going to probably want that evidence so they can adjust their already over-adjusted prosecution to make it, to still make it fit into their narrative. Because the more that I look into this, the less that I think Brian Koberger is either not guilty or did not act alone in this. And, yeah, and, you're spot on. You're yeah, spot on, Ron. Yeah. And the other thing is, is, is we know now now that the prosecution admitted, you know, that what they call genetic genealogy that they used with the DNA that actually wasn't Brian Koberg's DNA, right? To pin him onto this. Okay, so you have that number one, and now you have the police officers and the prosecution. Uh, widening the range of what type of vehicle it could be. Instead, oh, yeah. instead, instead of having it nailed down to exactly what Koberger drove, now it could be, well, you know, we might be off on a year, we might be off on X, Y, Z. And like, they've had that problem since day one in this investigation, you know, as far as not even having any clue what the actual perpetrator's vehicle is. And in all honesty, there's no reasonable suspicion in my mind that they don't know exactly what the vehicle was that was used by the perpetrator or perpetrators in this case and for example the uh the murder home there on 1122 king street had a ring doorbell camera so if the vehicle parked in front of the home or the uh intruders and perpetrators of this crime entered through the front of the home they know exactly what they look like they know exactly what the car looks like and there's a there's a lot of other neighboring video cameras there should be no ambiguity on this on this vehicle, right? You know, the but other there thing has is, remained ambiguity since day one. The other thing, JJ, too, is that that's bringing into question is this little black X, uh, luxury SUV that 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 they've been talking about. Okay? I think that's an important piece too. Yeah, for sure. And not only that, do we still are we still trying to figure out what kind of vehicle the DoorDash driver was driving? Exactly. Okay. No one's divulged that as well. Really? They haven't said what kind of car that is yet? Nope. Okay, so I looked up up some stats, some automotive stats the other day. Oh, nice. Do you know what the most popular color of any car sold in the United States is? It's probably white. It's white. Yep. So now, and I can tell you, you can put all kinds of midsize four-door sedans white together at night on a nighttime surveillance camera. You're going to have a hard time distinguishing one car from another. Even me, who's in the auto business and knows what each car is. They yeah, are, those are good it, points. They are indistinguishable to the layperson. Yeah, I, I absolutely. I didn't mean to interrupt you there, Ron. Yeah, absolutely. And if you recall, I think I mentioned in the last one, the uh, Moscow Police Department was operating, a, I believe, a silver in color four-door sedan, very, very similar looking to a Elantra in the immediate vicinity of the crime scene and the immediate time frame of the crime. And that's documented by their own body camera footage from uh, they were allegedly sitting there to uh, police underage drinkers coming, you know, in and, out, in and around the campus there. Yeah, not only that, but they were probably keeping an eye on this house if it was a known drug house, right? I suspect and, the same. And I'm not accusing the police of doing this, but... It wouldn't surprise me if they said, oh, hey, take this car and drive it past that camera. 
just take this car, drive it around the neighborhood in case we need to use maybe some footage to add to our narrative. I'm not accusing them of that, but if I was a a shady, if I was a shady cop, I would do that. Well, if you have a drug trafficking problem in a town and the cops are at least uh, compromised in that drug trafficking operation, that's a good way to kind of, you know, provide a deterrent from the actual investigation, the actual, uh, actual perpetrator's vehicle. Yeah. All I know is that this is starting to smell a lot more like cover up than anything else. As far as I'm concerned. I would agree with you. And to speak to the forensics, uh, this alleged genealogical, you know, DNA investigation that was alleged again, allegedly conducted because, I can't even say that it was conducted because they've done nothing to provide the discovery to the defendant. Now, I think they're on the fifth or sixth motion from Koberger's defense counsel to get this discovery. And now they're even trying to uh, throw in other, uh, you know, other wrenches in the mix, if you will, or, you know, to say, well, look, the FBI has got some of this stuff. This private lab's got some of this stuff. The state has some of this stuff. We can't produce all of it. These other parties have to produce these things. So they've created all these other little, uh, you know, detours in this discovery process to prevent Coburg from actually getting this evidence. And at the end of the day, I've seen nothing at all in any court filings that would substantiate that the law enforcement authorities or the FBI, because it's been reported as both parties, I'm not sure which party did this, entered into private property into a private community in Coburger's parents' house in Pennsylvania and seized trash from a trash can. Now, you may be thinking, if it's in a trash can, it's on a public road, that would be the case. However, this was a private community, private gated community. That's not a public road. Mm -hmm. They would need a search warrant in which to gain access to that, in which to get get that trash. Okay, so, JJ, the the whole thing with the DNA is totally sketchy. Right? Super sketchy. Right. So, so, okay, so, so what you're saying about the trash in a gated community I have to agree with you on that. I do have a. I did have a friend that was in the trash dumpster business. Okay. There's an actual law in New Hampshire that's named after him. Nice. Because once the carrier of that trash gets that trash in their truck, either a roll-off truck, a compactor, whatever. That trash now becomes the property of that company, be it waste management or, you know, BFI was a big one here for a long time. They they actually tried to arrest him for something, and he beat them with that law. And the law, it's called the Naughton Law in in New Hampshire (laughs) because once, once he took that trash, it was his possession. So if you take that reasoning, if, if, Koberger's parents are living in a gated private community. Mm-hmm. That trash is still theirs, even if it's outside their house in a barrel on the side of the road, waiting for trash pickup. Correct. That That's my trash, that trash does not belong to the HOA. It does not belong to the neighbor. It doesn't belong to anybody but Brian Koberger's parents until. It leaves that barrel and goes in the back of the compactor truck. Yep. Then it becomes the property of uh, let's just use the name waste management. It becomes the, the pro- it becomes the property of waste management. Then if the if the prosecution or any detectives or any investigatory things going on with this, they would have had to get a warrant to search the trash yep. at waste management. 
Yeah, and it doesn't seem like any of that has occurred. And you make some good points. I like the story about your friend there. That's a good story. Yeah, he, the, was, uh, he was quite a guy, man. That's all I can say. It sounds like it. <laughs> yeah, but you're, you're right, though. I mean, in, in some circumstances, the police can uh, pick up uh, trash in public areas and then test that for DNA. And that's actually occurred in this case. So one of the, uh, according to the, the court filings, uh, one of the suspects the police ha- did have early on in the investigation before Koberger was an individual who would not give up his DNA. And as a result of that, they followed this individual around town up there, Moscow or Pullman, one of the two cities there. They didn't specify. And the individual discarded a cigarette butt, and they picked up a cigarette butt, and they tested that for DNA. So th- now, these things kind of can occur know, like that. Were they using touch DNA for all this stuff? You know, the, the, again, it's the ambiguity of a lot of a lot of what has been released by the state in regards to the DNA because they claim that the uh, touch DNA was the DNA on the knife sheath, the alleged knife sheath that was allegedly at the crime scene. Again, I continue to say allegedly because the state has produced no substantial evidence at all to you know, or no evidence at all to substantiate these claims of the of the knife sheath. And on top of that, the actual police reports. The uh, arresting affidavits, et cetera, the, the uh, statements by the arresting officer or the investigatory officers, they have uh, – there's a lot of ambiguity there because there's uh, disparate stories about when the knife sheath was discovered, who saw the knife sheath first, first, where precisely the knife sheath was. And one of the things that I look for in an investi- investigation is if you're going to seize a piece of evidence like this knife sheath, then in, in the documents it's going to tell you – who seized it, when it was seized, and the I, and it should be tagged with some sort of evidence tag number in that same document. And that stuff is not present here. Okay, let me add something to the knife sheath. Okay, I got a little paragraph here uh, called State's Evidence, right? It says, okay. the prosecutors admitted publicly last month that they used investigative ge- genetic genealogy yep. to identify Kohlberger as a suspect. Kohlberger's DNA was found on a snap of a K-bar knife sheath found under a comforter next to Mogan's body, according to a recent filing. Okay, and that's the most recent one. You're right. That is the most recent location. All right, so let's back this up. First off, they don't actually have Brian Kohlberger's DNA, as far as I know. But, well, I mean, they haven't they, stated that. You're right. They have not stated that publicly. Well, they haven't stated that it's actually his because if that was the case, they wouldn't be calling it genetic genealogy. Exactly. So the genetic genealogy means that this DNA sample that they took from Koberger's parents' trash can could have been his dad's, could have been his mom's, could have been somebody else living in the house that's related to him. Could have been a first cousin. Could have been anybody in their gene pool. Yo, you know what weirds me out with this shit is like this, and honestly, it's the same exact thing, and I'm not getting into that, like with the Gilgo Beach stuff. Right. It's the same thing with the DNA, and it's like, you know, this is, I mean, regard. I mean, I guess, listen, if they did it, yeah, they should be getting caught, I guess, for it, whatever. But, like, you just think, like, it doesn't necessarily mean it's that person, though, with this type of DNA that they're using. You know, like, there's that whole side of the mother's. Yeah. No, and you make some good points. Could be anybody who's, you know, there's so many people technically. Well, if I, if I can, if I can add to that that comment, that is an excellent point, Nick. Um, if you all recall, and I've compared this, I believe, in our first discussion to the O.J. Simpson case. Mm-hmm. You know, and I don't want to get too too big into those comparisons right now, but relative to the DNA, the uh, 
and uh, you know, during the O.J. Simpson trial, and you all might be familiar with this name, and folks at the interwebs probably are familiar as well. His name was Dr. Kerry Mullis. He came to O.J. Simpson's defense and volunteered to testify for the defense in the O.J. Simpson murder trial. Dr. Kerry Mullis invented the PCR test, mm-hmm. the, inf- the infamous test that used the COVID test, right? Yep. The PCR test. So he, he testified that uh, uh, the state of California was improperly using that test to try to convict O.J. Simpson. So, and, and this would be a similar circumstance. They would have had to use it. They have not stated the state of Idaho, the FBI, or that Authorum Labs have not, not, not no, none of these parties have stated they use the PCR test. However, they almost had to have used the PTR, PCR test because they're claiming they got touch DNA. So they would have to amplify that DNA sample in which to test it, right? And that's the same stuff that kind of happened with COVID as well. You know, uh, the CDC uh, changed their parameters and the regulations as far as the PCR test. They, they essentially, not to get it too into the scientific aspects of it, they take they take it a small sample of the whatever they're testing, and then they amplify it by spinning it in the machine. Well, they spin it in the machine too much. Well, let's call it forty rotations. I believe that was the old normal, and then the COVID, they got a new normal of like 50-some rotations. Well, according to Dr. Mullis, if you start spinning anything in, in that machine at that, at that rate, you can make anything look like it's in yeah. – everyone's got you – got, you can make someone look like they have any disease. You can make the DNA stuff do a lot of you know funky stuff, which, again, is what he testified in the, in the OJ case was what the state was doing to OJ. All right, let me add something to that, JJ. Mm-hmm. Okay, Okay. so this just backs up, just get back onto COVID for two seconds. This back. This backs up the theory that everybody had, including myself, that the PCR test was nothing more than DNA collection. So, Dr. Kerry Mullis said a million times, this was not designed to detect any type of disease. Yep. But, now he didn't say this, but I'm going to say this. Okay, can, Dr. You, Ron's got, got some pr- Well, prognosis. it's just common sense. I like it. I like it. If you take that uh, that long swab for the PCR test and you run it up somebody's nostril, you're going to get DNA no matter how you slice it. Oh, absolutely. There's right? somebody in the chat who's in the medical field, and they just said the same thing. PCR no. only amplifies your DNA, and they said JJ is 100% correct. Yeah, and what thank, they, and what you, they did and what they <laughs> did to say that, that you were positive for COVID, which could in turn be used for DNA evidence, they ramped up the cycles for testing way past the parameters that would make it isolated to any one particular person. So 100%. Just, yep. just, just my, just my opinion, not a doctor. And this is, <laughs> and this is why they use the PCR test for the whole COVID deal. And this is why they're trying to tie it all in to say, okay, you know, that type of evidence, Oh, it's DNA. It's definitely, it's definitely his DNA. Mm-hmm. Right, which they do not have. I don't think they actually got DNA from Brian Koberg. I really don't. No, and, I, I know when they went to go, I think like, I don't think they do because didn't they try to find it online and they couldn't? Well, they ran the sample. So as the story goes, they ran the samples from the scene because the, mind you, they had more than one sample at the scene. So there's the knife sheath alleged touch DNA from the alleged knife sheath, but the actual investigatory documents and court filings also dictate that they had three other male DNA samples from the um, areas around the bodies in the house. Not saying like there wasn't like one on the front door and then the bodies were upstairs. According to their own documents, the the other male DNA samples were from around the crime scenes of the bodies in the home. So it seems like 
they have three other male samples that are still yet to be on yet to be identified and you know that 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 right there's a big problem when it comes to dna as well here but it seems that they don't have brian koberger's dna because i feel like the state of idaho would have been happily asserted into some sort of court filing we've tested koberger's dna and they matched this and this and this and they have not done that so i think there's as you point out there's a lot of there's a lot of holes here in this dna stuff Real quick, uh, just in the chat, because uh, it was pretty close, but I think you were a little bit over. Uh, Lisa says, um, 20 cycle threshold or less is a more positive indicator of a match. Once you exceed 30 cycle threshold, you are now running into error readings or false positives. There you go. Thank you, Lisa. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome to have somebody in the chat that knows this stuff. Uh, Uh, Yeah. You know, I still have to say we have a serious chain of custody issue with some of this evidence, number one. Uh, oh, big time. They say that they have snap DNA from the sh- from the snap button that's on the K-bar, which is on the little flap that goes around the handle and snaps onto the lower part of the sheath to hold the K-bar into the sheath, right? Yep. So. It would seem to me, if anything, they would get would be at least a partial fingerprint off of that. There you go. They're not talking about fingerprints. Nope. They're talking, well, maybe in a sense, uh, if they're calling it snap DNA, maybe that could be what they're talking about. I'm not sure about that. No, However, I, don't think, I think you're right. I don't think I've seen anything about fingerprints. And again, that, that would be an important thing. And any defense attorney worth their weight. They, they would be able to quickly poke holes to any jury in the presentation of that evidence because, well, how did, you know, how did my client, you know, the defense attorney would say, how, how did their client get their DNA on the snap, but they didn't have fingerprints on this chief? And then also on top of that, you know, the even even if it were his DNA on, on, on there, and again, touch DNA just means, you know, he could have touched, he could have shook someone else's hand. That person then touched this sheath on the snap. And that would have transferred his DNA on him. That is very plausible. And again, presenting that in a courtroom and having a defense attorney poke that hole in there is it should be you know weak enough for the state to even present this evidence. That's why that's why I think the state is continuing to hide this evidence because yeah. they know how weak it is. And it's a capital case, right? So it's a capital case. So here's the other thing: Do you really think? Because we haven't seen any evidence of this sheath existing. Number one. Zero. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, we haven't seen any pictures of it, and, and I can no. and I can understand that. However, whenever big cases are filed or whatever, they always blow it up in the media. They lay all the evidence out on a table. Oh, I got a stack of hundred dollar bills. I got a you know a silenced forty five automatic over here. I got I got an AK forty seven over here. Look at all this evidence we got. Now, you would think if they were going to do that, they would lay out a table showing this knife sheath. Yeah. Right. We don't even know if this knife sheath exists, nor at this point, I don't think the defense actually knows if this sheath exists either. But it's going to have to come out in discovery. Whatever the prosecution has for evidence, they have to give all of it to the defense. And this is what they were, this is what they were messing with initially. And this is why Ann Taylor's coming back with, well, you'll get the alibi when we're good and ready to give it to you. No, exactly. Right. Didn't the uh, judge actually have to force like a, a deadline for them to actually hand over yeah. everything in the discovery? Because I, I think that might have changed since the last time we did this. Yeah, because so. this well, cannot I, be open ended. They need to get yeah. this shit rolling. Right? No, the, the, you're right, Nick. The judge did uh, uh, set a deadline for. Hold on a second. My dog's jamming up. Go. It's all right. It's all right. <laughs> He's 
He's fine. Um, yeah, no, the judge uh, established the deadline for Coburger to produce the alibi. That was last Monday. He did not do that. They've they've established numerous deadlines for the discovery, and it keeps going back and forth. I think now. So now what's going on? No, go ahead. They didn't see it either at first, right? Wasn't it like something that popped up after the fact as well? Because it's not in the pictures, right? Well, yeah. So if you look at the statements of the initial responding officers and the uh, lead investigators in the case, everyone seems to have a different conflicting story of where this knife sheath was. As Ron pointed out, the most recent story is it was underneath a comforter. Now, that's the first time a comforter has been brought into the storyline. Previously, it was in between uh, the bodies of Madison Mogan and Kaylee Gonzalez. At one point in time, it was underneath each one of these bodies. Now it was underneath Madison Mogan's body and underneath the comforter. So, again, they continue to change these these precise locations. But, again, I, I would say the key factor to focus in on there is in the actual arresting affidavits and court filings, mainly the arresting affidavits in this case, there is zero – it's all – it's very ambiguous. There's, it should say we discovered this knife sheath at this time, at this location, and by this person, again – naming the person and then it was entered it was then seized and put into evidence under this tag number right and again that does not exist those statements do not exist in, in any of the filings not not only that jj but there needs to be crime scene photos of that location of the yep. knife sheath before it's touched or moved yep and all this is integral in the in the in the uh, custody of the evidence so custody of the evidence can become a, a major factor in any and especially in a capital case like this because if you don't have if you didn't uh, cross your T's and dot your lower lowercase J's, you know that could be an issue with trying to convict an individual, such as you know a murderer in this case. Did you guys? Did you, I'm sorry, Nick, but did you guys see? Did you guys see kind of nailing down the timeline a little bit better? Have you guys seen that? No, I haven't okay, actually. So what they're saying now that Xana Canoodle was on her TikTok at 4:12 in the morning. That oh, sounds that correct. Yeah. Okay. She got her food delivery at 4 a.m. So if they know they got the food delivery at 4 a.m., why don't we see who brought the food, how they brought the food, what they were driving for a car? That, that's, that's still very important. So now yeah. they're saying she was on her TikTok account at 4.12. So if she's on TikTok at 4.12, she's awake. She's not asleep. True. So if they're saying that this happened between 4 and 4.25, 412 to 425. I mean, that's like almost smack in the middle. You know fun. what I'm saying? Unless she completely passed out and this guy knifed her or whoever knifed her in her sleep. So what what I don't understand is that there's no there's really no sign of struggles, right? Like not really any signs of struggles that we know. And that we, then, that we know of. Yeah. And then the surviving member, and I thought that this was very interesting. Uh, the survive- two, two surviving roommates. Okay, so one of them come out and said, I heard somebody walking around in the apartment. Yep. And then I heard somebody crying, and then somebody saying, "That's don't worry, I'm going to help you. Yep. Okay, who's talking to who, and what time is it? Well, these are some good points, if I can... Can provide some uh, greater some greater detail here for you and provide a better sight picture of what you're what you're talking about, Ron. So the initial time frame was three to four, right? And 
That was so these these details you just you just mentioned with the DoorDash delivery, the TikTok account. These were not the the law enforcement authorities did not include these in their initial and timeline. So these were these were details that were brought out later, not by law enforcement, and then produced into their timeline so that they can make them fit. Right. So they were taking the square block and putting it into the circle hole, if you will. And on top of that, so these this alleged communications that occur between an assailant or assailants and the one roommate that's mentioned in the arrest affidavit. So there was two surviving roommates, right? Dylan Mortensen and Bethany Funk. Now, Dylan Mortensen is the one mentioned in the arrest affidavit for Brian Koberger. However, the defense has focused on Bethany Funk. And what's interesting also is building this timeline is the authorities have used the two surviving roommate cell phones. They say that in the arresting affidavits that they've used the surviving roommate cell phones to build this timeline. Well, wait a second. Why would you not be using the victim's phones to build this timeline, especially the victims ordering DoorDash, especially the victims on a TikTok? But they're not you in the, in the actual filings in this case, they're not using the victim's cell phones. They're using the surviving roommate cell phone and only one roommate, it seems, and that's Dylan Mortensen. When I was, the defense has subpoenaed Bethany Funk as far as to support their case and have basically alluded to the alibi of Brian Koberger rest upon the testimony of Bethany Funk. Well, what's interesting about this is it went from three to four. Yep. Okay. Gives them an extra hour to do whatever. But if she got a DoorDash delivery at four and she's on her TikTok at four twelve, and then they're allegedly all dead at four twenty five or four thirty. Yep. All right, that's not a lot of time to murder to murder four people. No, no, oh, okay, not, so, not to murder people, clean up the scene, and and leave the scene. All right, so my point is, is this timeline that they're trying to nail down to a tighter tighter timeline is I, I don't know what their reasoning is for this because nothing happened between three and four, not by the sounds of it. No, doesn't seem that way. So everything happened within a twelve or thirteen minute period. Yeah, I, right. I mean, it just it just doesn't sound right. It almost uh, seems like everybody kind of came back, like I don't know, and then like just shit happened, and that I don't know. Very well, weird. allegedly everybody was back no later than one fifty six a.m. But initially, the police tried to say that was one forty five a.m., and that was the return of Madison Mogan and Kaylee Gonzalez. Now. It was, again, once again, a third party is correcting the law enforcement's timeline in this case because it was Kaylee Gonzalez's sister who accessed her, her sister's phone and discovered the food truck video, the, the infamous food truck video, and also accessed the door ring bell camera, or the, door, the, the ring doorbell camera on the front door, saw them get, exiting the rideshare service that they used to get home and arrived at 156 and corrected law enforcement there. So, once again, law enforcement has been getting corrected along the way from their initial 3 to 4 a.m. timeline, which was the initial public statements they made. And it seems to me, the way I perceive these things, is they've painted themselves in a corner. Law enforcement authorities have. Real quick, I just want to acknowledge the chat. There are people yeah. saying stuff in here. Um, yeah, real quick, I this is what Angel is saying. I, you know, I'm just taking the word on it. They said that Zana spoke to her dad about uh, around 12 a.m. Yep. and said her and Ethan were at home watching uh, movies and eating pizza. Why the, more food a few hours later? I mean, right. I, I do. I, that, you know, that's a good question. Yep. Um, Zana, why you know, and the reason why I'm kind food. of entertaining this, and I do think you know, it could be something, is that even when I was doing stuff with the Gilgo Beach, I saw Zana coming up. There's a, a few connections actually of names 
and things between both cases when I do gematria. And the name does mean, according to uh, Lazarus, and I did check too, Zana can be like a, uh, a fairy or a like water nymph. Oh, interesting. Like, uh, yeah, it's uh, big in Spanish and I think Austrian and a few other places. And there was something else, but I forgot what they said. Oh, uh, the whole thing with the touch DNA. I know yep. uh, Fire, uh, sorry, I forgot the whole name. Fire Pixie had mentioned before. And, you know, I, I'm not saying that this is a possibility, like a this isn't what happened here, but it is a possibility, actually. Um, you know, this whole touch DNA, I mean, you know, the, the, you got a pizza box with the, with the Gilgo Beach the guy where it's just something sitting in a trash can that, other people could have brushed up against something that brushed up against that, or like even with Koberger, it's like with this touch DNA and them finding these things kind of out in the public. It's not like they're getting like, you know, when they went through the garbage and shit, you know, mm-hmm. and they get stuff. I don't know. I just feel like it's not like they're, they're getting this touch DNA shit that's in areas that could easily be getting it. I think from other people. I That's a good point. Even, even if it were valid, even if it were valid evidence, it's not strong evidence, right? Yeah, no. It's just like I do think it does open, open, you know, open it up to more discrepancies. You know, the way they're getting it, mm-hmm. like, you know. But I'm, I'm glad that you, Chad, brought up the point about Zana and Ethan, the uh, other two victims here in this case, because you're right. They're right. Um, that was brought out by Zana's father, and now because initially, once again, law enforcement authorities had claimed that Zana and Ethan were the Sigma Chi fraternity house, which is Ethan was Ethan's fraternity. Now it's within eyesight of the home because it's right along Greek Row there off of campus. But once again, that that busted the law enforcement's timeline. Right? If they're, if they're trying to say that Zane and Ethan were at this party from nine p.m. to one one a.m., well, then that was not true. When Zana's father came out and said, "Well, no, they I spoke with her. They were they were at the house. They were at their own home at twelve thirty. So. Once again, this law enforcement timeline from day one has just been moving the target along. You know, every time some new objective point of fact from a third party comes up, law enforcement's like, oh, well, we got to we got to adapt our timeline now and put that in there and, you know, switch things up. So if it were legitimate, what I'm getting at is we're a legitimate timeline. If it was a legitimate investigation. It was an objective timeline. You wouldn't have to do that. Mm. Right. Yeah, the same person, Angel, that mentioned something uh, earlier. Um, they, they've said a few other things. Actually, asked me to scroll back up and check it out. Um, it's it, this is. I mean, I would say this is actually a very interesting theory, or you know, possible actually, and it's actually kind of genius uh, to do it like this. If you wanted to be shady, I guess. I mean, who's to say that when they went and checked his place, they didn't use that sheath and just rub it across something like a pillow or a blanket? Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, how do you know you didn't already take that and just rub absolutely. it against something? They didn't have to check his place. Yeah, yeah. That's why I said we got a serious chain of custody issue with this knife sheath. And, and here's something else I'd like to just add real quick. Uh, There's no body cam footage either, they said, too. Yeah. That's uh, would it be possible yeah, it hasn't that... It hasn't been released. It hasn't been produced. Would it be possible that Xana actually wasn't the one on her TikTok? Certainly possible. Yeah. Well, if that was the case, it would be DNA evidence on her phone. Because phones only work if One you touch yeah. if you touch them with a bear. You can't have gloves and work a phone. You can't not even rubber gloves. Don't. Sometimes it'll work. Sometimes it won't. Just a question well, I have. Yeah, I, see what, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I see yeah. what you're saying. They, they do make gloves that 
that you can use a touchscreen, but they are they're unique. They're special. Yeah. yeah. Generally speaking, you do have to have bare hands on. Yeah. And in regards to the touch DNA, though, one, one other point is they didn't have to go search his apartment necessarily. Brian Koberg was involved in the doctoral program for criminal justice and applied for a public safety internship at the police department over there in, in Washington State University, Pullman, Washington. There. So. They may again. I think I've made this comment in our previous episodes. There's there's no clear indication that he did not get that position. There is a clear indication that he did apply for that position. So they may he may have already been an intern over there working for working with law enforcement. And the two departments work hand in hand. In fact, the old chief from Pullman is now the chief from Was- is for Washington State University. So and they're all part of a joint joint operation over there, joint 911 center, joint SWAT team. So these, these departments very much function as one already. So they, again, they may have just said, Hey, go look at the interns locker and let's get some DNA, you know, touch DNA. It could be as simple as that. That's what I'm saying. If this is any type of law enforcement cover up, if it is say drug, drug, like drug organized drug ring related, Mm -hmm. like you don't pull any of that off unless you're paying some cops off. So well, again, so yeah, that's yeah a good but point. so yeah. if if that is the case, then I don't think it would be out of the realm of possibility that they would actually do what you just said. Uh, absolutely, Ron. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's very reasonable to assume that there's something like that that could be at play here, especially as I uh, we've talked before about the the large volume of drug trafficking that has been going on on these two campuses within the Greek communities, the fraternities, the sororities. In fact, if Nick wants to put that in the link, or the, the link I sent him in the show notes, I mentioned it last time. Now, the the local drug regional task force is comprised of the law enforcement departments of the Pullman, Moscow, the five neighboring counties. All of the prosecuting attorneys and the police chiefs sit on the board of that task force. So the people prosecuting Koberger literally have a bird's eye view all day long, every day, of the drug operations in that town. And in fact, one of the examples that we discussed last time in 2019, uh, I believe it was a, a press release I sent. I, I think I sent to you as well, Ron. Uh, a uh, Pullman. It was the the drug regional task force, but it was out of the report was out of Pullman, Washington, and they quoted the one of the fraternities over there as running the largest pill stamping operation in uh. the state of of Washington. This was back in 2019. Now they don't tell you which in the press release what which fraternity it was and I have looked. I'm not saying that I'm I could have missed it, it's possible, but I have looked and it seems that case has been sealed. Because I cannot find evidence in the court record of that case. Yes, I do remember us talking about that. Yeah, yeah very much. So, so. we we do have evidence, very publicly known evidence, of large-scale drug trafficking operations that the same precise officers, prosecuting attorneys, et cetera, have, are involved in that task force and running that task force are the same ones that are convicting and prosecuting Cobra, or attempting to convict and, and prosecuting Cobra. You know, it's interesting. So you there is, that. there seems to be a, if there is a drug, drug trafficking operation, if the police are involved, there is definitely a conflict of interest there, in my opinion. You mentioned, uh, you, what are these, Greek fraternities you said before? You said something about Greek, right? Yeah, the Greek communities, the fraternities, yeah. the sororities. Yeah, I, was, I just happened to still have that, you know, uh, I guess, meaning of Xana up. And as you were saying that, I just happened to look at the screen. And it says, in ancient Greek mythology, Xana represents the concept of wilderness and is often depicted as a nymph or spirit of nature. That's I mean, interesting because I mean, 
I, you know, I don't know. I don't know how deep these the theology or philosophies of these these students that, that involve themselves in the Greek life go, but you never know, really. I guess, right? Because I can see her her sister's also a sorority member over at Washington State University, so her siblings are also involved in the Greek life. I'll tell you what, JJ. I really think, I really think the theory that these Greek fraternities and sororities are all part of a nationwide drug trafficking organization. I don't think you're too far off. I think that's definitely possible. Yeah, I, I, I think it's. I think there's a lot to be said there because, and it's not just unique to this campus. I've kind of followed these cases around other campuses and other reports over the years. Because you know, one thing that's always bothered me is you know we are we have this war on drugs in America ever since the the Reagan years or even the Nixon years really, and uh, you know nothing. If anything, drug trafficking has only increased over this time, right? Oh yeah. So it's created it's created a black market. It's it's more lucrative market, and it's grown exponentially over this time. And if you look to see where these a lot of these large scale kind of incidents are, whether it be the use of drugs, large scale use, or large scale trafficking, either either instance. It's a lot of it's on college campuses, and it makes sense. You get your customers in at a younger age, you get them hooked. They got these, especially within the Greek life, these kids have money, right? As far as the trafficking within the Greek community, the Greek life, and college campuses, right? You already have a built-in nationwide system. You have a system of secrecy already built into the system because if you're not part of the organization, you can't go to the functions, right? Especially if you're a guy, you can't go to the functions. If you're a girl, I think they have some slightly relaxed rules in that regard. However, if you're, you know, for the large part, though, these are secret societies, secret societies. Oh, that's a right? really good point to put it. I mean, yeah, yeah for so you sure. Have this veil, you, you already have this veil of secrecy. That would be the, I mean, again, if I was operating like a, a drug cartel, that would be where I want to go deal drugs. Just from a business standpoint, you're a businessman, Ron. You understand these, these concepts, right? Yeah. Endless supply Only of customers. Me. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Endless supply of customers. There's always and, new ones coming in. Yeah, and, yep. and the secrecy that's involved, and and just like anything, you talk about the war on drugs, Nancy Reagan, just say no campaign, yep. right? The whole dare campaign yep. where the cops would go to the, the schools to talk to the little kids, you know, to talk about the evils of drugs. You know, oh, what, I, grew up, I grew up in that, in that dare environment in school, yeah, for yeah, sure. What better cover, though? Yep. You know what I mean? It's, I mean, we know, we know that Across this nation, there's a lot of crooked cops, and we know that they're taking the drug money. We also know that there's people on the federal level that are taking the drug money. This amount of drug trafficking does not happen without somebody higher up knowing. It's plain and simple. Because the big cartels will actually alert the police to who's dealing. Yeah. And say, okay, get rid of our competition. Believe it or not. The movie Scarface, the one with Al Pacino, was so incredibly accurate when it came down to him dealing with that police detective from Miami who was actually working for the drug dealers. And he told Al Pacino's character, listen, we like snacks. Just give us enough so we can get a bust once in a while to make it look like we're doing our job, basically. Yeah. I don't think that's it's I, I think it's very accurate. I think that's what we got going on here. And the only way they can take the uh, take the eyes off of themselves is to somehow manipulate the evidence, pin it on this Koberger guy. Now listen, 
I'm not saying this Koberger guy is just a regular normal person because I don't think he's normal at all. However, mm-hmm. do I really think that he went in there in a short period of time, slashed four people to death, left no blood anywhere, no footprints, no fingerprints, nobody walked in any blood. Dude, there would be blood literally everywhere. Oh, for sure. And it's hard for me to believe that a person like Koberger would be able to do this. This is more of something that a a natural-born psychopath would do. And and this is what what cartel hitmen do. They do not care. Well, that's what I was going to say. This, this, to me, all, all the hallmarks of a very surgical... Um, you know, incursion into this into this home, the uh, the assassination of these these kids in a professional manner, like I said, like a cartel hitman, right? But also, again, the police have already produced evidence that would that that would substantiate any claim that this scene was already cleaned up, right? So the police initially, uh, when they were searching, when Coburg was first arrested, they got a search warrant for his apartment. They were looking for, a, if you all recall, a van shoe print. Or sorry, a van shoe. They allegedly found a van shoe print inside the home. However, that was not a blooded shoe print. That was a latent shoe print, meaning the law enforcement authorities had to put down a chemical onto the floor, put down some powder on top of that, and then produce the shoe. So right there, in their own evidence, in their own statements, it's showing that this scene was cleaned up. Right. If they're not finding a bloody footprint, they're finding a latent shoe print, right? And that's what they're looking for in Carver's apartment. They're already admitting, tacitly admitting, obviously not expressly admitting, that they that the scene was cleaned up. They have not said that again. They have not expressly said that, but their own statement and evidence says that. Okay, so check right? this out. Check this out, JJ. If mm-hmm. this was a party house, how many people are coming and going? Number one. Number oh, two. Man. Number two, you got four <laughs> you got four, five people, six people in this house at the time. Mm-hmm. How many footprints do you think they would have been able to find other oh, so than many. other than one, which leads me to believe that there was a cleanup and mm-hmm. somebody got sloppy and left a footprint because that possible. house should have been wall to wall footprints. And then how could they distinguish? How could they distinguish whose footprints they were? Are they going to go through every person that lives there? Go through their closets and take pictures of every pair of shoes that they have to actually uh, single them out away from the actual footprint that they found. Mm -hmm. So they're saying they found one latent footprint. Mm -hmm. Okay. That is not possible. Not even two. Yeah, just one. Just one. That is not possible. A shit ton of footprints and they had to go through them to figure out which one. That's my point. It had to be cleaned up. It had to be cleaned yep, no, up in the did. meantime yep. for them to find one footprint. And, and also, I, I, I scrolled through all the social media accounts of these girls early on. They all wore vans. The occupants of that home wore van shoes. Mm-hmm. Oh shit! So who's to say it's not one of the one of the one of the surviving roommates, one of the the murdered roommates? Well, who knows? You know, there was never any. Any you know honest or objective investigation to that regard? They said we found this one latent shoe print. It has to be the culprit of this crime, and we're going to go look at Koberger's apartment for this shoe. Okay, they didn't that, find it. That was my you. point, JJ. They should, they would have to look at every pair of shoes that every person that lived in that house owned. 
Yeah, absolutely. Like, even the shoes that they possibly were wearing, like, if they were all in bed, then they're not wearing shoes, right? But their shoes are going to be by the door, or they're going to be by their bed. They're going to be somewhere. Now, mm-hmm. if you want to eliminate that footprint as any type of evidence, well, you need to see what the people are wearing. And that, yep. uh, that, that would elimin- be the objective way to do it, correct? Yeah, I mean, how, I mean I'm not, you know, I'm not a professional investigator. These are be wrong. You do a lot better than these cops do. These <laughs> these are simple things that you would do without even thinking twice about. Yeah. This is no, text, absolutely. This is te- I do, I do know a little bit about investigations, just for disclosure. Because I because I <laughs> used disclosure. to have to, I used to have to know about them, and I also used to know how to avoid investigation. So, oh, that, a fixer, that, huh? That just that just makes me good at being <laughs> analytical about situations like this. That should no, have that should have been on. done. Yeah. That should have been done. You're spot on with your analysis for sure. Well, thank yeah, you. and it just again it draws more scrutiny into the actual investigation that or lack thereof that has taken place here, right? Yeah, you know, this there's, there's so many holes in this case. Uh I I think they made a big mistake by saying they were gonna try him capital. Uh obviously murdering four people, that's a capital offense, but I'm saying maybe they should have been a little bit more careful about what the initial charges were going to be before they came forward with a capital murder case because now evidence has to be a whole lot better than it would yep. be for, you know, manslaughter, et cetera, you know, whatever. Not that I think any of, any of this could be deemed manslaughter, you know. It's just there's so many no, holes in this case. That's a good point. I really don't know how the prosecution thinks they're going to move forward in this unless they have a stacked jury. And it's going to be. Well, it's going to say that because they've already stacked the grand jury, according to Koberger's counsel in the recent filings this week. That's the assertion by Koberger's counsel is um, they, they motioned to dismiss the grand jury indictments, quoting uh, Idaho law and then quoting a what is a sealed a sealed affidavit that was filed with the motion that we can't see publicly, but according to the, the public statements in the in the motion, you know they're, they're basically covers defense counsel saying the state rigged this grand jury and it needs to be thrown out. The indictment needs to be thrown out and revert back to the public arraignment hearing that was already scheduled at the time of the grand jury indictment. Okay, so, so just so good just, point you, you make about rigging the juries. So just for the listeners. All grand juries are stacked. That's well, that's to why, a certain degree. To a certain degree. Yeah. Well, that's why it's so easy to get an indictment. Well, yeah. There's the famous. Uh, I believe it's out of Nick's state of New York. Uh, the the New York State Supreme Chief, former Chief of the Supreme Court, or Chief of their Appeals Court there, and they have a somewhat funky court system in New York. But I think it's the they don't call it the Supreme Court there. I think it's their Chief of the Appeals Court is the lower court of under the Supreme Court there. But he, the judge there, I think it was the '80s, famously said um, Saul Wachtler, I believe was his name, famously said you can. Essentially, a prosecutor has such great mobility in a, in a grand jury process that they can indict a ham sandwich. Yeah, you know what? And, that's, that, and, and, and it's, it's what you say because you, they have. First of all, you can only present. They can present one side to this jury, and they don't have to present an opposing side. And there's a and generally speaking, there is a lower lower level of um, uh, lower bar for you know uh, for incriminating evidence, right? However, in the state of Idaho. They do seem to have some pretty stringent rules regarding grand juries, according to what I've what I've been looking at based upon Koberger's counsel's motion. Right. Well, that would so be interesting. Not only do they have to, 
they have to do a random a random kind of selection processes, which is it seems that they didn't do this kind of. Uh, I'm not to get into all the details of the, how that random selection process works. However, generally speaking, folks show up for jury duty, and then out of the pool of different jurors, they randomly select this grand jury for a grand jury situation, right? And it seems, according to Coburger's counsel, they did not do that. And uh, secondly. The state of Idaho seems to require a, uh, a a higher bar of criminality or incriminating evidence to indict somebody. They actually they actually say in their own law, which was quoted by Koberger in their motion to dismiss this grand jury indictment, that you have to have uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. So generally speaking, that's only beyond a reasonable doubt left for trial. You're right. Most most jurisdictions grand juries do not operate on beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah, funny enough fact about the ham sandwich. You're absolutely correct on that. Uh, when I was indicted by a federal grand jury based, oh, nice. I like to hear based this. on based on evidence from the Organized Crime Task Force based out of Providence, Rhode Island, my lawyer ex- said exactly that to me. He goes, nice. I, he goes, he calls me. He goes, "Well, you're indicted." I said, "Yeah, I'm not surprised." He goes, "Listen," he says, casually, just says that. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, you're indicted. This whole, th- my whole case. I'll, we'll talk about it off the air sometime. Uh, this All was right. a this was a very casual thing, right? Believe it or not, uh, because they knew they weren't going to get anything out of me or really anybody. Uh, he said, "But he said, but don't worry about that. They can indict a ham sandwich." He literally said that to me <laughs> yeah. verbatim. What you're saying. Yeah. So yes, that's a very common phrase. That they use. I was not aware that the state of Idaho had different parameters for that, uh, which yeah, which I is want, interesting. They seem to have a higher a higher bar there for sure. Yeah, yeah. it is. It is interesting because yeah. it is it usually like you said, like you point out, it's the actual uh, the proof, the level of uh, evidence, and the the uh, proof of criminality that has occurred is generally a lower bar than beyond a reasonable doubt within a grand jury process. Yeah, I, I know. I know. In the state of New Hampshire, uh, everybody gets indicted. Doesn't matter what the evidence is. <laughs> At least that's that's how right. it that's how it seems that it works. But which there's some pros and cons to that process. But it is oh, yeah. nice to see that uh, that uh, you know, well, in theory, the justice should be should be uh, should be met when you have a higher standard of law. But however, clearly that's not what's going on here in this in this case with Koberger because if it was beyond a reasonable doubt. I mean, they don't we don't none of the actual evidence was presented to the grand jury's public yet, so it's it's unknown what what that was. However, just on the evidence we've discussed here today. Already and in our previous episodes, I mean, does any of does any of this evidence meet the bar of reasonable doubt? Just in either of your your gents' opinions, you know, as far as a grand jury uh, point of view, really. But again, reasonable doubt, reasonable doubt. That's right. the bar. That's the that's, right. that's kind, you have to meet. Kind of on the fence there. Uh, I would say, based on the evidence that was presented, be it skewed or not. If I was an unbiased person sitting on a grand jury, I would say yes. There was there okay. there, no, there wasn't there was enough to at least indict him. Listen, without indictments, nobody makes any money. The legal system is point. the legal system's there to make money. If you are not it indicted, if you're not indicted and you walk away, the lawyers aren't making any money, the state's not making any money, and if you go to prison, the prison industrial complex isn't making any money. This is why yeah. it's so easy to get indicted because they'll say, you know what, let's just indict him. There's enough evidence here to say, you know, reasonable doubt or lack of reasonable doubt or however you want to put that. Let's let it go through the legal system and see how it turns out on the other end. 
Yeah, and I, again, I forget the exact verbiage. It may not be beyond a reasonable doubt in the exact verbiage, but that's what they're getting at in the Idaho law, right? Is it, it's a, what they're getting at is it's a, higher, it's a higher level of standard in which you have to present evidence. Now, again, the prosecutor could have cherry-picked which evidence to present to the grand jury. Yes. They may have presented two pieces of evidence, for you know what I mean? So Yeah, and they, it, and they can do that. On, I'm sorry, JJ. Yeah, they absolutely can do that. No, no. Yeah, I'm sorry, no, to, inter- I'm sorry to interrupt you. However, uh, they can do that. They can cherry pick. Absolutely. They can cherry pick the, not necessarily what they consider their best evidence, but enough evidence. It only takes a little bit of evidence to get indicted. They might yep. say, okay, I'm going to give you X, Y, Z, but I'm going to hold this ace up my sleeve for later. Because this is what I'm going to throw them off guard with. And this is the exculpatory evidence that we were talking about before that the prosecution is withholding from the defense. The the prosecution does not have to give the grand jury every piece of evidence they have to get an indictment. Nope. Not at all. Nope. That's totally legal to do it that way. What what are your thoughts on that, Nick? Um, My opinion, you know, there's a few Grand jury process. I thought that was real shady, that whole thing. But yeah, I, mean, I think it was real shitty how it went down. But as far as, yeah. as far as the evidence that's been that would have likely been produced to a grand jury, do you? I mean, do you think you know with Koberger's counsel's recent statements that this was a rig, kind of a rig process, and you know they didn't you know they didn't follow the Idaho law and the grand jury indictment process? Which I think an argument can definitely be made for that. Whether or not it's true, it certainly seems like it's true at this point in time. Well, I mean, just for me, if I was on that jury, I I, I know honestly. For some reason, that eight-hour gap is what really, like, throws me off with this mm. whole thing. Yeah. And, like, I really just think of even hearing that, I'd be like, you know, there might be something, like, weird here. So I would, like, yeah. automatically be like, I, I already think there'd be something. If if it's him, there's, some, there's more to it than that. So it's still, sure. like, I'd still have a doubt. You know what I'm saying? Like, it just yeah. wouldn't seem right to me. Like a juror could no. come back and say, listen, Maybe there's enough to indict him. We would like you to come back with a little bit more. And th- and this is and this comes back to what is the prosecution hiding? You know, you know, like you they, say, they're hiding some, they're like, hiding lots of stuff because I mean, it's obvious because they keep denying discovery. Like what NY just said, that whole time gap may not have even been presented to a grand jury. They may not yeah, have even known possible. about that. It would be really interesting. Can we get our hands on the evidence that they actually used for the grand jury? Is that public information? So they have motioned for that. Burger's defense has motioned for that. It, like Much like everything else on, in this case, it just continues to be sealed or denied, right? If it's not sealed, then it's denied. So nothing is really public about that yet. But I think this most recent filing, I think it was actually July 25th, so a couple of days ago. They just posted. So they've been doing all sorts of funky stuff, too, on the Idaho court website, right? So things are getting removed on there and put back up on there. And it just – even even just the dissemination of this information is being, you know, for lack of a – you know, for more, for more of a technical term, fucked with, you know. You know, so there's a lot of that stuff going on. What about the theory uh, – because I've seen the videos and I didn't see anything that – is even close to this, but there's some people throwing a theory around that there was some type of altercation at the food truck, which which caused somebody to go cuckoo to go and kill all these people. Have Real you guys quick, heard yeah. anything about that? Before I forget yeah. about that scene, I remember I think I sent it, I mentioned it to JJ. I don't know if I said it in the chat. You know, I was watching that not too long after we had uh, did our last show, 
And just like real quick, and like these are just weird things that I see. It makes me question because, like again, like to me, magic is just kind of like making you also believe what you're seeing with your eyes. And when I was watching that shit with that uh, that truck stuff, there was a point at, at some. There was one point in the video where there was two people that had numbers on their clothes. Mm-hmm. You know, throughout the whole time, there was only a total of two who did end up coming together, saying a few things, and then the other one walked away. And one was nine, and one was three, and that was ninety-three. Uh, that's I was a like, big, you know, that's just uh, really number, weird. Right? I get that from like watching that video a few times. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, again, this could there. be some of the more metaphysical aspects surrounding some of the occult nature of of, of the incident altogether. Who knows, right? I think that's an interesting point. I didn't personally pick that up, so it's it's nice yeah. nice to hear that that uh, this murders additional aspects. These murders could definitely be part of some type of occultist ritual killing setup. I think so. Yeah, you know, uh, I mean, because even even uh, Koberger's lawyer, you know, basically comes out and uh, and it's, this uh, uh, quote. Uh, There is no explanation for the total lack of DNA evidence from the victims in Koberger's apartment, office, home, or vehicle. Yep. So, I mean... And, Ron, you've been saying a cult, in my opinion, that would still also give credence to the cartel. Because, in my opinion, they're into that shit themselves anyway. Yes. You know, I mean, I don't think a lot of people know that, but, like, they are heavily into that type of shit, especially when they're doing good stuff. A lot of... A lot of yeah, good point. A lot of cults operate no different than gangs do. They sell drugs, they sell guns, and they sell and they sell sex, yeah. prostitution. Yeah. So yeah, it's the same. It, the, these these terms are interchangeable in many regards. Be it gang, be it cartel, be it cult, right? Yeah. So yeah, I think that's a good point to, to bring up. And relative to the food truck video, Ron, I, you know, I, I've seen some of the some of the you know the interwebs. Uh, you know, theories and suspicions about some of the some of the characters in the food truck video. No, I don't put much credence to that stuff. No, 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 no to the point. I think it's a good point you brought up. Oh, no, um, no, that thing, was the things I find most compelling. No, no, good. Go that, that that's my that was my point, JJ. I saw nothing in the, any of the videos, and I watched yeah. several I that agree. would indicate that there was any argument, any altercation, or anything uh, nope. between anybody there. And, and that's okay, why I, I say I misunderstood you. That's, but that's a good point to bring up. Still, well, that's what I was asking. If you had heard anything different, because I didn't, no. I didn't see anything that showed any type of altercation. Yet, this is being thrown around. Now, is this being put out by someone as disinformation to kind of muddle the waters a little bit? You know, we do know that that's a possibility when, say, uh, the prosecution or the police or uh, the investigators really have nothing to go on. Uh, then they're going to start. They're going to start throwing information out there to get people's mindset in a different direction or in a form of a distraction, right? A magician's distraction, right, Nick? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so something else. Remember, <laughs> now we're on the same page. I'm tracking with you, Ron. But if I if I can just interject real quick, yeah. What I find most compelling about that food truck video is the coat Madison Mogan's wearing. I know we briefly discussed this in, in previous uh, discussions here on the series. Um, that coat was later found in the precise location where that same silver sedan, the police were operating an undercover unit just yep. in about 200, 300 meters in front of the home, yep. uh, the murder home, that code by all appearances uh, was found at that same location where that vehicle was sitting. So again, if she's wearing the, the, the code home arriving home at one fifty six, the police are sitting in an unmarked sedan, silver unmarked sedan there. And that's near a fire hydrant. 
roughly 200 to 300 meters in front of the home at 3 a.m., which is, again, is documented by their own police body camera footages. Um, how did that coat get there? And mm-hmm. is that indeed the coat Madison Mogan was wearing? Again, it's a male's coat, very oversized for her. She's a s- smaller woman. And it seems to have the same unique white identifying tag on the left arm, which, again, appears to be the same precise coat the police are photographed picking up. Not clear if they took it into evidence, but seen picking up near that fire hydrant, again, from the precise location where that silver marked sedan of the two Moscow PD officers were sitting Again, in and around the time of the murders. Okay, personally... So that, I, that's what I find most compelling. Personally, I think the coat is a nothing burger. Uh, it's I, possible. I think it's, I think it's just being thrown in there. If you look at the video of the food truck stuff, like they're wearing like hoodie-type sweatshirt-type deals, right? Uh, possibly a coat, but do we know from the videos, does this coat that was found 300 meters away from the scene happen to be right next to where a surveillance car was parked? Does that does any of the surveillance from the food truck show any of these people wearing this coat? Massa Mogan. So she, yeah, was, she was wearing that coat. Okay, so she in was that food truck video. Okay, so she was wearing the coat that's described as the one that they found down the street from that's the house. What, that's where the ambiguity comes into play. So no one wants to no one wants to go into any further details within the investigatory documents about even bringing this coat into evidence. However, the Within news media reporting, the police are picture or photographed picking up this coat off the ground, looking at this coat like, "Oh, this might be something, right?" And again, it has a it has a white tag right along, along this kind of the bottom area of the arm around this region, and it seems to be the same white tag and the same black coat that Madison Mogan is pictured wearing in that food truck video. And it's obviously a male coat. It's not it's not a female coat. It's a men's coat. It's far oversized for a small woman like Madison Mogan. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna dig a little deeper into that. Uh, I say that I think it's a nothing burger only because uh, we haven't heard a lot about this coat until recently, right? But I don't it, think we've heard anything about this coat. Yes, I, that's, one so, the, that's one of the big question marks I drew on the whole case. So there could be something to it. So for part four, we're gonna look into this coat. This could be an angle. However, you know, a gentleman that has a coat. It was, was a cold night, right? would say, sure. you know, if you're trying to, you know, maybe buddy up with a chick, say, oh, you're awful cold. <laughs> right. you're, you're awful cold. Here, take my coat. Like, you know, right. step on my coat in the puddle type of deal. Uh, no, I, I'm tracking. I get you. Yeah, so, so this coat, maybe I should backtrack on my statement. We'll look into the coat thing. Uh, do yeah, we and have- I'll share with you the photographs that I've saved in regard to the coat. My biggest question with the coat is how did – if it was the coat Madison Mogan was wearing – how did it get to that fire where the unmarked police car was sitting and at 3 a.m.? So they're there. I don't know what that – I don't know. It's not clear precisely what time they arrived. They're there at least at, I believe, 2.30, roughly 2.30, right? She got home at 1.56. So is there is there a spot in time where she could have walked out her front door after being dropped off in her driveway, ran, a, you know, the 200 to 300 meters in front of her home, thrown the coat over on the ground and went, went back inside? It's certainly possible. Doesn't sound reasonable, but it's certainly possible. Well, if you remember when we first talked about this coat, I I don't know if it was in part one or part two. I had a theory that this ride service, we don't know if they were being rude to the driver. Say, just say, for instance, to kind of go back to what I believe I said last time. Say she didn't have the coat on in the car or as you say, maybe it wasn't her coat at all. 
it was a coat that she either borrowed from somebody or maybe took from the club. Who knows? Yeah, right? so she just grabbed it on the way out of the bar. Yeah, just cool grabbed it on the way coat. out of the yeah. bar. And maybe yeah. threw it out the window before the rideshare place got to their residence or she left it in the car. The rideshare people dropped them off Gets down the street a little ways, sees a coat that doesn't belong to any of them. He's maybe not happy with them and probably said, F you, here's your coat, and threw it, <laughs> and threw it out the window. That's what I would have done. I mean, yeah, that's so, exactly what you said last time, and that, I, I agree with yeah, you still. Yeah, yeah, that is a very plausible scenario. I, what I would like to see, though, is some sort of investigation into, is that the coat she was last seen wearing? Right. When the last public place she was seen alive and how did that go get there? Those are really the only, I'm fine with it being that scenario. And I think that's a very plausible scenario you've painted. I wish we However, could talk. I just I, want to see an investigation into There's two people. I wish we could talk to one, the DoorDash driver. That would be, yeah, that would yield a lot of answers. I believe would like to talk to the DoorDash driver, ask him a few questions, ask him what kind of car he drives. They should have already done this. And if they and if they did do this, well, they're, they're withholding that information. Of course, we don't know Correct. what they have because well, I think they do state that they have identified and know, but they just don't tell you anything. You're correct, Nick. Yeah. Well, they, they have they have claimed that they've identified the DoorDash driver, but they just nothing. Haven't really seen the details. They just say we rule. They ruled out the DoorDash driver. They ruled out everybody immediately. Right. This is within day. This is they. they I mean, this is within days of the actual crime. They're saying, "Well, we've ruled them out. We've ruled them out." Okay. Well, how did you rule them out? Okay, but. If they questioned this DoorDash driver in any way during the investigation, that has to be put in file, put into evidence, and and that needs to be released to the defense on discovery. Now, absolutely. All right. So I would like to see pictures of that coat, JJ. If, if you think of it, message them to me. You know, uh, next no, day I, or two. Okay. Yeah. Not a now, problem. Not a problem. something else that I brought up in an earlier episode, and I and I find uh, still interesting. Remember when I said that there was a glove found outside the house the next, not, we don't know if it's the next day, the day of, or the next day, but it was not picked up on right off and was not placed into evidence until like a day later. Like no, it was actually two weeks later. Okay. So nobody knew anything about this glove, right? Right. Now, now I'm, I'm reading in another report, lab analysts discovered DNA from another unknown man on a glove found outside the residence on November 20th, 2020. There you go. Okay. So it sounds like it was eight days later. Okay. So nobody saw this glove the first day they were there. Right. What kind of glove is it? Was there any evidence on the glove? Was there any blood on the glove? Whose DNA is it? It says unknown man. So they have no idea. So if they have no idea, this guy's print, the course. this guy's this guy's prints, this guy's DNA is not in any database that's available. Now well, it could be a cop. Could now cop. Said maybe I've, they long, I've long thought that was one of the law enforcement authorities' gloves. They just threw. He was found on the perimeter of the scene. I think they just they threw it out. That was kind of my take on it. Or, or was Nick? Somebody said maybe they get their drugs via DoorDash. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, it wouldn't be the first circumstance that's not out of the realm of possibility whatsoever. <laughs> no. Okay, so so if if one of the investigators took off a glove and just tossed it, that's freaking sloppy. I'm sorry, you don't do that. Well, because, because par for the course. Be, yeah, but you don't want that stuff out in the public either. 
Anything that yeah. you're touching on any crime scene, you don't but want that. That needs the to go. The law enforcement's not who found that glove, though. It was some random private oh. detective who came, yes, came to town, yes. and he's the one who found that glove. Yeah. You know, this, this was another thing. I, I just, They said it again in the chat. I saw them mention it up at the top, and I forgot to ask uh, your guys' opinions on this. And I, I'm just wondering, like, if you maybe you also know, like, the scenario better but do they say like how many people and like was there like vehicles because this person is like saying there was like six parked cars and supposedly like 12 people in the house yeah i don't think they've ever really come they so law enforcement said other parties showed up to the house before they were there they acknowledged that other parties were present when the 911 call was made they've not divulged the quantity or names of these parties and there was one, two, three, four, I believe five cars in the driveway. So, like, one person who doesn't know any of these people is just going to show up and try to pull that off with all those. Like, would you even think about trying that? Exactly. Exactly. Like, oh, with all those people, there, you assume there's that many people there. All right, this goes no, back. No, that's a great point. That's a great point. Yeah, exactly. And this goes back to the other idea that we had. It took a long time between the time that these people were murdered, if their timeline is even close to being accurate, and it was reported. But we do know from some things that we've seen that people in the sororities and the uh, fraternities knew about it. Mm -hmm. So maybe they went to the house before the cops got there? Right. Yeah, I mean, they, that's Where, definitely the well, well, hold that on, JJ. There. Were they the ones that did the cleanup? I mean, I mean, we don't know that. But I I mean, yeah, think great. about that. That's a really good point, Ron. Because, like, I think the girls are have you know, people have even said that's involved with that fraternity. Like, it's almost to the point to where it's like, well, you contact us before you even call the cops. Yes. No, that's that's their that's their that's the rules they're supposed to operate by. But no, I think that in my mind that is exactly what occurred here. That you know, right, wrong, or indifferent. Let's say let's say that some of the kids that came over there, the kids, the young adults, the college students. Let's say they weren't involved in the crime, but they wanted to they wanted to clean up things so some of their friends didn't get in trouble. That's very plausible. That definitely could have occurred here. They called up Harvey Keitel from uh, Pulp Fiction, <laughs> the Wolf. Miss <laughs> <laughs> the Wolf. You're right. Please, here. please call me Winston. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what? Uh, that very well could be the protocol right there, right? Uh, but we do know well, they are instructed to do that. The 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 Greek the Greek community they are instructed: do not call the police in an emergency. Do not call uh, family members of any alleged dead or injured party. Call your fraternity president. Call your sorority president. And they'll call the upper the upper echelon of that organization, the national chapters. We'll take care of it from there. Yeah, you know, I think it's going to get more interesting from this point on, and that's why, that's why we need to stay on top of this. I oh, mean, yeah, I mean, this is an ongoing thing. The closer we get to the trial dates, or or even, I don't even know if they've done any pretrial hearings on this yet, right? Because it could be a well, whole the, the, a, a whole series of pretrial hearings just to lay the law down and come up with a game plan that's feasible for both sides. All I see is Absolutely. both sides arguing back and forth. That's all that's going on. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of stuff getting sealed. Uh, a lot of stuff that's not being looked into. The additional male DNA. They've uh, placed uh, subpoenaed bank records of unidentified parties that have yet to be really known. Who, who owns these bank accounts? 
or cell phone accounts that unidentified parties of who owns these cell phone accounts. It isn't Coburg. It isn't the victims. It isn't the surviving roommates. We know that much. So there are a lot of additional details that do do need to get hammered out before any any trial can occur. And right, as of right now, the trial is scheduled for October second, I believe. Yeah. And you know, that's that's a good point. So that's a good point that you bring up. So this is obviously going to continue to get delayed because these things have not been figured out yet. Now, as far as the hearing goes, the public arraignment hearing was supposed to occur day. You know, then that's when the state swooped in. And said, "Well, we just did this grand, this confidential, you know, sealed grand jury indictment. So the public arraignment hearing is suddenly canceled, right? And I find that very intriguing because that occurred in in uh, at the same time frame as uh, the defense getting a subpoena for Madison Bogan's deposition. The defense was going to travel. So the two surviving roommates they left town. They're, I mean, they're not they're not back at school. They're I mean, I'm not." diminishing these individuals whatsoever i wouldn't want to be back there either i'm just saying they the defense was going to go all the way to nevada to go depose uh i said madison mogan i meant bethany funk um to depose bethany funk so the moment that got that happened right your the state was looking at a public arraignment hearing i believe two weeks after that after that subpoena got issued by the court and that's when the state said oh Sticker grand jury time, you know, or, su- or surprise, we got the sealed grand jury indictment. So no more public information on, you know, what we did to, to indict cover here, because that, as you know, Ron, that, that would have come out in the public yeah. arraignment here. Yeah. yeah. And this could be the reason why, even though, even though the indictment was delayed, it could be another reason why they wanted to get the indictment taken care of, because once the indictment is down, everything can become like sealed secret. And only nope. that information could go from the prosecutor to the defense, and they're and they're not gonna they're not gonna go out in the public and tell anybody what they have, like like. Well, they're already not divulging it to the defense, right? With the, right, with these right, but back after the discovery demands, right? But after defense has their total discovery, and I think mm-hmm. and I think why the prosecution is holding off is because they don't really have enough discovery. Enough well, evidence to shit. give in discovery, so they're they're freaking stalling for as long as they can to build their case bigger, and that's why this and that's why they're stalling this whole process, you know, and that's a violation of Koberger's rights, in my opinion. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, so it's a due process. Sure. So there's going to be a lot more things, obviously, uh, and I do apologize. I hadn't had a lot of time to dig deep since last episode, but between now and we do part four. I'm going to spend, I'm going to actually put some time aside and get kind of a little bit deeper into this because I think from this point forward, this is when it's going to start getting really interesting. And what's going to be interesting is what Koberger comes out for an alibi because to me, they're leaving that as a cliffhanger. They put, they put a little taste out there, say, well, Koberger's got an alibi. But the prosecution's right. like, okay, well, tell us what it is. No, I'm not going to tell you anything. Why don't you tell us what you have? Well, so, you're no, you're that's right, that's right. But they, they, the defense has alluded and kind of, uh, you know, you can take a you know a logical leap in guessing that they, their statements of well, Koberger's alibi is contingent upon the cross examination of state's witnesses, right? Well, who's the state's witness that they had just subpoenaed right before the grand jury indictment? Bethany Funk. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of read between the, the, the ambiguity of these filings and, and, and see that likely the alibi is contingent of Coburger is, is contingent upon the testimony of Bethany Funk. Okay, so they are still going to depose her? 
Well, I mean, they had an order. They had an order to to depose her. She was subpoenaed, so supposedly, uh, yes. Uh, however, given the way this case is going, it's hard to tell. But why? But I've that, heard that, that. I think that there's supposedly, you know, I've heard. I don't know. If, I think rumors or whatever that like this them trying to interview her is like almost is like going to possibly clear him, right? Well, yeah, that's so. That's the most recent filing this this past week was. Oh, okay. Cobra's defense saying, "Look, we didn't produce an alibi. However, Cobra's alibi is contingent upon our cross examination of your witness's state, right? Yeah. And again, if you want to read between the lines, there that witness would likely be Bethany Funk because that's who they already subpoenaed to, to for a deposition for exculpatory evidence to to for Brian Coburger, right? Uh-huh. So, again, they're not really clear in these things, but if you want to read between the yeah, activities and the game, the lawsuit, the matter. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it seems that that is his alibi, is is the testimony of Bethany Funk, which, you know, that's going to be a, a new element that this whole case as well. That's going to be interesting. Do they know each other? Do they have some sort of relationship, be it, you know, platonic, or, you know, some sort of romantic relationship, what have you? Or hidden, you know, hidden that, relationship? Yeah. Yeah, you know, some sort of side piece action. Who knows? Or OnlyFans but, relationship. I mean, you know, I I brought I mean that up before. Piece, thank you for, for clarifying. I, I, well, I always say that's. I think that's a high possibility, right? I brought yeah. that up before. Number one, well, there was evidence that, that, that there was OnlyFans activity. So yeah, yeah. Okay, so just saying, if there's if if this Bethany Funk could be everything hinging on her deposition. Like, I hope she's, like, being careful. I hope she doesn't, you know, go out to the Mojave or go out into Death Valley. You know, if she's in, you said she's in Nevada. I believe the Reno area. Yeah, Yeah, okay. So, yeah, I hope somebody's keeping tabs on her. Uh, Like I said, going to be real interesting going forward. I do promise I'm going to dig into it a little bit more for part four. And, uh yeah, let's see. Let's see what goes on. I think it's. I think it's going to get uh, as as NY likes to say more high strangeness coming. Yeah, I definitely think so for sure. Yeah. With yeah. that, well, I, I, th- I think you're, there's some good points you make, Ron. I look forward to hearing some more of your feedback in the future here on the subject. If I may bring up two two more points before we close out the conversation here today, one being uh, we well, where I discussed earlier or in the previous. Uh, Part two, regarding you know the greater implications, some of the you know the uh, political uh, uh, issues that may be weighing heavily on this case, being uh, if there is a drug trafficking operation going on involved in this case, that where is that money getting laundered? And then there's the money laundering bank 30 miles north of, of both universities at Moon, Moonstone Bank, another very occult sounding name. And again, I think there are some implications to why they. FTX, the cryptocurrency company, buy I've out this seen a lot pop up actually when I've been running Moonstone. Moonstone, I've been seeing that pop. That's up. interesting, and not making because a connection at all. Wow. Okay, well, so that's we- interesting that you found that because so FTX, if you recall, FTX, the confirmed money launderers, right? They uh, the cryptocurrency exchange. They they bought out a rural bank that was as old as the towns up there, 125 years old, yep. right? It, one building, one bank. It's not a, not a chain of banks. They bought this bank out three years ago and we're clearly money laundering through that bank. And I say clearly money laundering based upon the FDIC records, based upon the department of justice, seizing $60 million from this bank in January, mind you uh, the 10 years prior to 
FTX purchasing this bank, they only had $10 million in deposits total. So for them to have $60 million in just a portion of deposits from like a quarter of last year, they get seized in January. There's obviously some money laundering stuff going on with a confirmed money laundering owner, the FTX, right? So the thing I ask there is, you know, what's going on with this FTX situation? Because there's an inverse relationship right now going on between FTX CEO Sam Bankman-Fried uh, and the number of charges he's facing, right? So as, as the more and more publicly is known about the crimes of FTX and the money laundering operations and other crimes, as more of this has become public, the crimes or the, he's charged with it are all going this way. So the, yeah. the, the, yeah. the known crimes are going this way and the charges are going this way. There's an inverse relationship. So he just, the Department uh, of Justice right now is dropping more and more charges for some reason. I was just going to say he, he had more charges dropped just this week. Yeah, yeah. So it, I, I find that very strange. Yeah, very well, strange. a lot of well, a lot of that is based on his donations to the Democratic Party. They mm, they sure. want to drop them charges because if they drop those charges, they don't have to tell anybody what they know. Okay, so that's, so, that's, that's so obvious. We, yeah, that's a good point. That's a yeah, good point. Yeah. So we already know that that whole FTX thing uh, is shady. Uh, this Moonstone Bank has all the uh, all the visuals of what we used to call a mob bank. You know, a bank, a bank. Uh, yep. You know, I mean, it could be a cartel bank. I'm just saying. Uh, used Same to be ba- used to be back in the day, just from the knowledge I had from my past life, uh, that these <laughs> folks would have their own banks, and not only yep. that, they had their own insurance agencies. Uh, and this, and this is where, and believe it or not, this is where they made uh, the bulk of their profits were from mm-hmm. fraudulent insurance deals run through their own insurance agencies, money deposited into their own, well, I won't say own bank, but let's just say a, we use the term controlled, a controlled banking institution. Yeah, absolutely. Which if you, yeah, get a, if you get enough rich guys together, you can start your own bank. I know a guy that started a bank when I was a kid. Do you know how you much know, money was involved with that thing? Somebody in the chat is saying that it was $93 million. With FTX, with with Moonstone Bank, yeah, FT, FTX is way bigger than ninety three million. That's that's bigger than oh, Jeffrey Epstein. It's Ponzi in the billions. Scheme. Yeah, it's in the billions. Yeah, FTX it's bigger is. than yeah. Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme and Charles Ponzi, the guy who invented the Ponzi scheme combined. And FTX is the biggest Ponzi scheme in American history. Where they're getting the ninety three million NY is that's what they can account for that Sam Bankman freed. Donated to the Democratic oh, Party. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. Oh, that may be true. Yeah, and that's he, also uh, the, ninety-three. No, that, yeah, that may be true. Yeah, because the the money at Moonstone Bank exceeded ninety-three million as well. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. that's all based on what they what they can prove that he donated to the Democrat. You know, various. Well, not just Democrats. Some Republicans too. Some Republicans. You know? yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> But uh, yeah, yeah. This Sam Bankman Freed FTX thing—it's the same uniparty, right? This FTX thing is going to be a nothing burger when it's all said and done. Well, sure. I, I hopefully, hopefully. I mean, given historical examples, I think you're correct. Give it BCCI, the bank of uh, you know the CIA's bank in the money laundering that was connected to the Vatican and the Archbishop here in America, uh, Paul Mar- Marchinkus. Um, that whole mess. You got the you got the savings and loan scandals of the early 90s, which, again, is kind of tied into that same scandal from the 80s. So I think, historically speaking, you're correct, Ron. Yeah. I'd like to think that maybe maybe some things have changed. Again, who knows? 
But I do like to, I do often, again, wonder how much of that is connected to this Idaho 4 case because FTX files bankruptcy in Delaware, which most corporations are, you know, yeah. headquartered in Delaware for, for corporate, corporate legal purposes. Sure. They, they file bankruptcy there. And again, 36 or 42 hours later, these murders occur in Moscow, Idaho, in and around a small rural bank that FTX had purchased that suddenly became public upon the filing of the bankruptcy. And if you're trying to clean up this operation, you got to tie up loose ends. And is part of those loose ends the uh, distribution center of some of these drugs out of this university? Yeah. I think it's possible. Yeah, and I think it's important to uh, – I know we were thinking we were going to talk about it tonight, but we didn't get there. Uh, part four, I would like to talk a little bit more in-depth of the drug connections that two of the – well, one mother and one stepmother – uh, had involved, which could be part of this as well. Yeah, that could be part of it as well. But I'd like to throw one more uh, point at point at you in response to that. The uh, University of Idaho fraternity president who died of a drug overdose death back in March of this year, mm-hmm. who had been supplied the drugs by folks within the social circle of the victims in this case, right? Um, that individual overdosed in Seattle. That was where his over. He, he didn't die in Seattle. They traveled. They got him out of the hospital there. He died about an hour and a half east of Seattle. However, that same case I mentioned earlier out of the Washington State University fraternity, who was doing this next largest pill stamping operation in Washington State history, they were distributing the drugs to Seattle. Uh-huh. So there is clearly a pipeline of drug activity between these two small towns, these universities, Washington State University, University of Idaho, and the city of Seattle. Where, where the extension of that drug trafficking you know, channel goes, it's undetermined at this time. However, I think using those two examples of the Xanax st- pill stamping operation and this University of Idaho fraternity president's drug overdose in Seattle, I think there's a lot more uh, – it, it draws in a lot more scrutiny to the matter and a lot more questions that need to be asked. Yeah, and I, and I still – I know this is a theory that I haven't really shared. I uh, might have with you guys a little bit. I still say that there's a Mormon cartel angle here. Oh, yeah. Well, because we know Salt Lake City, Utah, Salt Lake City, Utah is the hub. Okay, so so the drugs could be coming up through Mexico with Mormons. Oh, oh, we're Mormons. We wouldn't be smuggling anything. And don't sleep on Idaho, Ron. Don't yeah. sleep on Idaho. You got that's that's Mormon fundamentalist country, and I, you have some very very exa- powerful Mormon fundamentalist groups up there. Exactly, and this is why I think there's a Mormon connection, at least yeah. to the supply portion of this whole deal. So yeah. the drugs no, come. We discussed last time. Yeah. So the drugs. The previous episode. Yeah. The, the Mormons are, are definitely involved in in cartel operations in Mexico with the next team called the. The uh, LeBaron and the Romney families down there in Mexico, those fundamentalist groups and the ones that the women and children that were killed we discussed last time. So that's a good point. Yeah. Good so, point. so coming from Mexico to Salt Lake, from Salt Lake up into Idaho, which is heavy duty Mormon country as well. And Big then time. and then spread out all over as far as what you said, Seattle, because when you when you're in Seattle, what are you going to think? Well, the drugs are coming from offshore. Okay, so they're well, looking they're up, from Canada up in Vancouver. They're looking in the wrong direction because the drugs are coming from Salt Lake. That's it's very possible. I, yeah. I agree with you. Yeah, just I, I like a, just it. an I angle, like 
just an angle for everybody to look into the yeah. listeners and the people in the YouTube chat, which I signed on to and I've been watching. So nice. Detective Ron brings a good yeah, element to the case. To, uh, yeah. You should be able to, both of you, you should be able to comment as well with your own YouTube channel if you have them. Uh, oh, nice. in the too. Yeah, I think that's like a new thing they added on StreamYard. So if you have your own channel, you will like kind of uh, sign in and, you know, you can answer with your own shit. Yeah, I got awesome. in. I got in on, on the uh, on your chat. So nice, nice. I've, I've been watching them, but yeah, uh, yeah. So, oh, so much going on here, and, 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 <laughs> yeah, and, and, and really NY wa- NY wants to get involved with this uh, go go beach thing, and I'm like, oh my god, uh, you know, <laughs> both, I, both, yeah, yeah. We're, we're, invest- though, right? so, we're I mean- investigating on multiple fronts, but that's an interesting case right there as well. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, for sure. I agree with you, Ron. That is an, that's a very interesting case. And I think there's a lot of, much like the politics associated with the Idaho case, I think there's politics way heavily on the Gilgo Beach case. Oh, yes. And Nick Shane said, and he, he and I have kind of discussed this stuff offline, and I, I don't want to get into it right now in this discussion, but certainly would be happy to discuss in the future with, with both of you gentlemen. And uh, if, I, if I can make one more point here on relative to the Idaho case, and I, something I heard Nick bring up before, um, regarding the movie Scream and some of the elements that he's seen around Scream, the Scream uh, motif of, of uh, yes. the Idaho case. And, I, and did you want to share any, any of those thoughts, Nick, before I made my point? Believe it or not, I'd have to go back and check what I, what I had for that. Okay, I, well, I, I don't remember exactly. I just yeah. I remember you saying stuff about there was, you, you saw some elements of Scream kind of incidents, you know, Comparisons between Scream and, and, and this of, case. You know what the problem is? If I see, I do think there's a quite. I do think there's a possibility of the Kopecker stuff possibly being involved with this in some weird way. Oh, yeah. And there was a lot of Scream symbolism within Kopecker stuff. There we go. So that's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's why. Like to even get into that, it's you know this would be a we can, yeah, yeah we can save that for the, for part four. But yeah, yeah. no, I couldn't recall the exact details of what I recalled you saying. But that is what yeah, that was it was relative to Brent Kopecker. That's right. Yes. But yeah, so on October twelfth, might have been October thirteenth, twenty twenty two. So one month prior to the murders, the University of Idaho Film Society, the Student Film Society there in the university, did an official screening of the first Scream, Scream 1. Just throwing that out there as an an oddity of of high weirdness. High strangeness for sure. Yeah, that's right. I remember you told me that. That's just a coincidence. Setting set the stage, possibly, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah no, I'm going to have to definitely go back and start checking some more stuff out before we do this. Yeah. I was so stuck with the Go-Go Beach, I really kind of slacked Yeah, it. no worries. I, I couldn't remember off the top of my head what, what those connections were, but yeah, you're right. It was relative to Copaca. Yeah. Um, do you guys want to plug your channels again real quick? Uh, Ron, we'll go with you, even though yeah. you just throw on the bottom anyway. Yeah, come and check me out, Ron from New England, on Instagram. Also on Twitter, Ron from N.E., Check me out on either place. Also, host of the Wicked Planet podcast. We do one show a week. Come check it out. It's available everywhere. Thanks for having me on again, guys. I really love these conversations. Oh, hell yes, man. Yeah, for sure. So I want to thank you. Thank you guys for uh, having me on. Help me uh, join in. Yeah, thank you, Ron. I I, I enjoy your insight, especially with uh, some of your stories with the uh, the garbage (laughs) fella and the... uh, some of your inner workings of the you had some uh, real life experience. Uh, I, I definitely <laughs> do because I'm probably yeah. twice as old as either of you guys. Yeah. So yeah. 
Yeah. Ever. Yeah. Uh, thank you. And JJ, plug you plug yourself real quick. Well, uh, Nick, I appreciate the invite again. And, and Ron, it's great talking with you. Nick, great talking with you here on this conversation. I four. Think again, we, we have plenty more as we've identified uh, areas to explore here. Um, looking forward to doing that in the future here. Uh, anyone, any folks of the interwebs who want to come check out Operation GCD podcasts, uh, we're located anywhere where I'm located. The host, anywhere podcasts are located. I have link trees on my Twitter and on my Instagram, which Twitter is at Operation GCD and uh, Instagram is at or at Operation underscore GCD. Awesome. And I think I have all that down there in the bottom as well. Something I would cool. like to add real quick. Sorry. Any listeners, if you have any insight or any questions or any feedback on any of this, feel free to email any of us on this panel. Yeah. And we will send look it into in. it. it we'll, yeah, send it in and, and we'll check it out and we'll talk about it in the following episodes. Because this is, yeah, be yeah, is going to be an ongoing series, I have a feeling, until this whole thing is settled. Oh, and, and, and that could be literally a year from now. So. Yeah. yeah, easily. So, totally yeah, so stay tuned, everyone. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you, everybody who was in the chat and adding and, you know, the questions in the comments. That's why I go live. I love it. I appreciate all of it. And like Ron said, reach out to us if you want to help, you know, send us some directions or topics to talk about with this stuff. Uh, and that is the end of another NY Patriot episode. Until the next one, everybody be well. Later.